All the while, however, she was waiting in her heart for something to happen. Like shipwrecked sailors, she turned despairing eyes upon the solitude of her life, seeking afar some white sail in the mists of the horizon. She did not know what this act of fortune would be, what wind would bring it, towards what shore it would drive her, if it would be a rowboat or an ocean liner with three decks, carrying anguish or laden to the gunwales with bliss. But each morning as she awoke, she hoped it would come that day. She listened to every sound, sprang up with a start, wondered that it did not come. Then at sunset, always more saddened, she longed for the next day. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Peachy. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. We're glad to have you here with us. We're glad to be back at full strength after a week off for Friedrich. And uh, we're going to start a conversation very soon on Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary. But first, uh, a little bit of business. As always, you can... Follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Readers K. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Readers Karamazov. You can find our episodes on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Visit us at thereaderskaramazov.podbean.com. And you can send any questions you have to thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. We always love uh, listener feedback. Don't have any this week, sadly, but uh, send, send your questions in, your comments in. And if you would... Tell a friend about the pod. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, spread the word a little bit. We're an organic, homegrown podcast here, so we appreciate your support by word of mouth. We are back this time. We are in the second of three uh, episodes in part three of our series on Middlemarch. Uh, we are calling this section Lonely Women in Your Area. Last time, Carl and I had an excellent conversation on Kate Chopin's The Awakening. We talked about music, we talked about the labor of love and all sorts of things. So go check out that pod if you haven't listened to it yet. Do go back and listen to our four podcasts on Middlemarch as well as the podcasts from our first series responding to Middlemarch. We've talked about Candide by Voltaire, we've talked about Aristophanes' The Clouds, we've talked about Soul Mountain by Gaojing Zhen. It's been a really good season so far. We're excited to keep up that momentum tonight as we talk about one of the most famous books ever written, though maybe one of those books that is more often talked about than read, uh, which is Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. This is my pick, and I'm really excited to be talking about it with you all. As always, I'm going to start by giving a, just a brief plot summary, if you don't know about Madame Bovary, and then we're going to spoilers, get Spoilers beware. Yeah, spoilers beware. I will spoil this one from the beginning, so you, you've been warned. And then we're going to get into some of the details of what we think make this book work think about some of the philosophical ideas behind it and, and go from there. So Madame Bovary is the story of a country woman in mid-19th century France named Emma. She 
kind of hastily marries a country doctor, Monsieur Bovary, Charles Bovary, who she thinks at the time is a kind of a wonderful, dashing young man. As it turns out, though, he's really kind of um, a bore. He's he's very nice and kind, but very dull, not actually very dashing. So stuck in a sort of provincial town in France, she very quickly tires of her life. She strikes up a sort of flirting friendship with a young man named Leon, who then leaves town to become a lawyer. And as the book progresses, she sort of gets more and more wrapped up in her fantasy world where she is a beloved and interesting person. She's very fashionable. And as a result of these sort of fantasies, two things happen. One is that she continues to pursue love outside of her marriage. She's unsatisfied with the steady but boring Charles. And so she takes up with a local aristocrat named Rodolphe, who's very dashing and very handsome, but is in fact a seducer who has no real interest in her. Having been abandoned by Rodolphe after a time, she's kind of inconsolable. And then eventually she takes, she rediscovers the existence of Leon, who's still very kind and wonderful, but also kind of interesting and romantic and dashing. And so she retakes back up with him. Simultaneously, though, she is, in order to fuel her lifestyle, getting deeper and deeper into debt with the local shopkeeper who keeps selling her things that she can't really afford. And then she'll double down on her promissory notes. And so eventually the things reach ahead. She's basically found out she's bankrupted the family. She can't deal with it. Her lover, Leon, does not come to, to her aid as she's expecting him to. And so in a fit of dismay, she shoves a bunch of arsenic down her throat and dies. And then there's a little bit more to the book after that. And I, I'm going to get into that. But that's that's sort of the climax of the book is her death at, at the, the hands of a cruel, indifferent world. That's Those are the basics of the story. Um, it has been often parodied, often talked about, but perhaps very little actually read. So I'm excited to dive in tonight with you all into what makes this book work. To talk just a second about its connection to Middlemarch, in some ways it's it's a fairly obvious um, set of connections in that it's a mid-19th century book. The setting is provincial France, not England, but you know, a similar sort of style. There's even, yes, it features a an unhappy doctor's wife who spends too much money. Um, I don't know, Friedrich, if you have any insight into this. So this was written, what, about a decade before Middlemarch would have been written, do you have any idea if, if George Eliot would have read this, if it would have made its way? Presumably she spoke French, so she might have read it in French, but did it make it, had it made its way into the English consciousness by this time? Do you know? That's a great question I don't have an answer to because I know that Balzac was still really influential in the English novel when Eliot was writing, but I don't know about Flaubert because, you know, he was scandalous. And so I don't know if that would translate well or not, or if he had been translated, if it was boldlerized or not, that's actually something probably worth looking into. But like Middlemarch... If any listeners have any insight, uh, drop us a line. Let us yeah, know. that would be a great next episode thing to address if someone reaches out to us. I, I could say that that like, like Middlemarch is looking back several decades. This book is written in 1856, right? Published 1856, but looking back to 1827 forward, maybe. And so there is sort of a, a little bit of like the way things were, not to the same extent, but that pastoral quality. Yes, and it's important maybe to note that Flaubert is writing in the wake of the second big French Revolution. So he's looking back at a time before that revolution. So that's the revolution that eventually results in um, Napoleon III taking over, um, the, the nephew of the first Napoleon. 
uh, as emperor of France. So it is, it's like looking back at a, a slightly more antiquated time and a rural time. There is not to the same degree as in Middlemarch, but there's some sense as well here of the passing of time and technological progress changing the way that country life is being led. So that's kind of running through in, in some more subtle ways in the book. And there's like an emergent middle-class bourgeois lifestyle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so those are some of the connections. You know, there, there are ideas of marital duty versus love. This is a much more, as you said, a scandalous book. In Middlemarch, of course, there's never a hint of any impropriety, um, at least in the sort of infidelity sense. Here, though, we have that depicted relatively explicitly, actually more explicitly than than The Awakening, I think, which was written quite a bit later and was scandalizing in America, in turn of century America. But Flaubert is not afraid to to get a little bit erotic here. So for sure. And that, that was a scandal at the time. He had to defend himself in court and things like that. But yeah, there's there's a sense that there's that same sense of unhappiness in marriage. And like I was thinking about this in connection to having just read The Awakening, like we talked about last week, Carl, a sense of underlying, you know, the obvious thing is the the marital stuff, the the love. But underlying that, there's a similar sense between Edna Pontellier and Emma Bovary of a sort of malaise about life, right? An underlying ennui that's plaguing them, that they think maybe they can find a relief for in erotic misadventures, but in fact is like won't leave them alone even when they engage in those things. So I think those are some interesting connections to think about at the front end of things. I mean, what do you all make of this book? It's, it's obviously a book that we all of us have read you know, several times before, I'm sure. I find it a particularly attractive book. I, it's one that I really come back to in my mind. I actually haven't read it as much as I've read some other books, but I find myself coming back to it a lot as I think about what successful pieces of fiction can do in creating a world and, and exploring the depth of human emotion and exploring philosophical ideas in some very interesting ways. Carl, what do you make of this book as a whole? Yeah, I guess I have a few thoughts on that. I was going to ask you a question similar to the one that you just asked Friedrich too, which is that, is there any possibility that Flaubert would have read Kierkegaard? I highly doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do too. But there's an interesting connection made by the critic Harry Levin, who kind of says, um, there's this quote from Either Or, that's cribbed in my Bantam Classics version. So Kierkegaard in Either Or says, it is remarkable that the whole of European literature lacks a feminine counterpart to Don Quixote. May not the time for this be coming? May not the continent of sentimentality yet be discovered? And for Levin, there's perhaps Bovary is the female Quixote, right? And there are different literal books about the female Quixote. But, but I thought that was kind of an interesting way to rethink parts of the book and also you know if if quixote is in some very very broad way the first modernist novel or modern novel or something there are a lot of firsts or places uh big labels that are put on madame bovary in certain ways that i think are really interesting so realism the capital r uh, gets thrown towards bovary a lot even a certain kind of modernism, if uh, certain parts of Henry James are certainly modernism, a lot of those parts come from this turn away from a novel exploring the important characteristics and virtues of either a tragic or comic hero or heroine. What makes them virtuous in quality um, is totally like denuded of Madame Bovary, right? And that is not what's happening here instead there's some kind of 
psychological insight or extremely precise detail mm -hmm. that makes it more realist. But it's that psychological turn that also makes it kind of proto-modernist, which is pretty interesting. So yeah, there's there's a ton of really interesting stuff to say about the book. And I think it's also kind of one of the first, maybe I'll be making a wild a historical claim here, but like literary fiction, if that's like a new genre, it kind of feels like it also has its precursors in Bovary. So the critic like James Wood loves this book and hates the end of postmodern fiction and lauds, you know, the Franzens or the other people who are just realists of today who are called literary fiction in the terms of the publishing world of the 21st century. And in some ways, too, that has as its fountainhead like Madame Bovary. There are all these kinds of traditions laying claims to this book. So to me, that's pretty interesting. You gave us a lot to unpack there, Carl. That's really good. Uh, on the Kierkegaard question, you know, I think explicitly, probably, almost certainly not, although there's a kind of a funny postscript to this, which is that Kierkegaard is largely, of course, untranslated beyond really a little bit in Germany until the 20th century. But one thing that does make inroads, and I don't know the exact date, it would have been after this, I'm pretty sure, is right. that there's a very French, popular French edition of only one part of either or, which is the seducer's diary is like the only part that gets translated into French and it's wildly popular. Um, right. of that's course. why I thought there might be some connection, right. you know? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I doubt it, but I think that's an interesting, there's an interesting confluence there of either or would have been written about 15 years before Madame Bovary. So there's that sense of like, maybe there's something in the air here that Flaubert is picking up on and realizing like it's time for, it's time for a female Quixote, which I think is a really, uh, it's obviously a very big, comparison point for this book is thinking about Don Quixote. We can talk, unpack that a little bit more later. But yeah, I think that's a that's a really fascinating point. I also like your point about this book as a sort of fountainhead for a particular brand of realism or whatever we want to call it. Literary fiction, I think, is good in that it's a little bit more self-consciously artistic mm -hmm. than something like Middlemarch. Although there are moments in Middlemarch, certainly the pure glass, where she's thinking through these these issues of... But, but I would say, to paint some very broad strokes here, since we're going to do that, English realism in the 19th century tends to be a little bit less self-conscious. It's a little bit more plot-oriented and a little bit less psychologically oriented or something. And so something in Flaubert is maybe anticipating somebody like even like Dostoevsky, who's going to come a little bit later, in that there's a rich interiority in this book and also really a sense of Flaubert as an author at work. There are aesthetic choices being made here, and maybe we can talk about some of them in a minute, that are only being made for the sake of aestheticism, not really for any other purpose. I think that's a nice distinction between this and Middlemarch. If they're both uh, celebrated for getting to the interiority of the provincial life and provincial people and representing a kind of psychological realism for Middlemarch that's indelibly connected to the social reality around it. In this one, it's like the psychological realism is, it's not a narratorial character expounding upon all the connections they make in their social lives and how those affect them. But it's like the pointed, as Carl mentioned, like anticipating literary fiction, the pointed sentence level single observation about a person that really just captures them and it does that in ways that are really highly physical for a book that's so interior some of the physical details are really incredible and like for instance this one doesn't really reveal much 
but when Emma's at the ball, uh, she's eating a maraschino ice. I'm only reading this because it's exemplary of his prose style, and this is a translation from Francis Stigmuller. He writes, She was here, colon, and around the brilliant ball was a shadow that veiled all else. She was eating a maraschino ice at that precise moment from a gilded silver scallop shell that she was holding in her left hand, semicolon. The spoon was between her teeth. Her eyes were half shut. Like, it's so overly precise, and yet it doesn't feel like it's unbearable to read. Um, It just, like, locates you in this exactness that seems cinematic to me. And we've talked about books that are cinematic, but in a much different and much more imagistic way than something like Middlemarch. Again, maybe we should talk about this aestheticism of Flaubert. It becomes, uh, and the critic Eric Auerbach calls it uh, a kind of mysticism as well. It's an asceticism, an asceticism, and an aestheticism, <laughs> right? Where he spends, you know, famously days composing one page and mm-hmm. writing and then paring it away, paring it away to the majus, right? The perfect word, the perfect <laughs> phrase, the perfect sentence. And for Auerbach, he believes that the truth of the phenomenal world is also revealed in linguistic expression. This is a theory, mystical in the last analysis, but in practice, like all true mysticism, based upon reason, experience, and discipline, of a self-forgetful absorption in the subjects of reality, which transforms them and permits them to develop to mature expression. And so you get this sense of, like, Flaubert needs to, like, a alchemist or something distill down to the quintessence every you know five pages he writes down to one page or one paragraph and you know for the time he's not a balzac or a stendhal right he's writes like five books maybe this is his first one right and way different than the like one a year of or whatever balzac is extremely prolific yeah yeah as you know like no one has read all of balzac right so like so yeah, it's an important part of what we're getting and what Friedrich just described, you know, that I like the Stieg Mueller translation too. Like there's a lot of that just intense ornateness. And so you get like the, you know, you get a certain forerunner of like a, a Poe and Nabokov, right? Nabokov also loves Flaubert, but I wouldn't call those people, you know, realists, you know, they're no. like ornate style, purple mm-hmm. prose kind of writers, which, you know, I like, but at some point that parted ways with, you know, the James Wood literary fiction, yeah. which is, which is very, they walked into the room, the room was bare, the room was silent, he touched her arm, uh, you know, like it's yeah. just. So, so it's almost like he's, he's almost at the, at the fountain head of two different streams of writing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to. Can I just draw our attention to another passage? This is on the very first couple of pages of the book. This is wonderfully absurd description of young Charles Bovary going to school for the first time and the hat that he wears with him at school. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the um, I'm, I'm reading out of the Eleanor Marks Aveling translation. <laughs> this is such a lovely passage. It was one of those headgears of composite order in which we can find traces of the bear and the coonskin the shako, the bowler, and the cotton nightcap. One of those poor things in fine, whose dumb ugliness has depths of expression, like an imbecile's face. Ovoid and stiffened with whalebone, it began with three circular strips. Then came in succession lozenges of velvet and rabbit fur, separated by a red band. After that, a sort of bag that ended in a cardboard polygon, covered with complicated braiding, from which hung, at the end of a long thin cord, 
small twisted gold threads in the manner of a tassel. How do you even, can you even picture this hat as it's being described to you? It's so bizarre and like multi-variegated and, and just absolutely strange. And it's like you're pointing out, Carl, this is not tethered to reality. And so I think calling it realism like really does it an injustice in some ways. Mm-hmm. This is, to me, is pure aestheticism. This is yes. Flaubert saying like, what in the, what can I add now to this bizarre hat? And so even the, even though there is, you're absolutely right, there's a distilling that's going on. There's also room for the absurd, for the, the incongruous. It's not a perfectly stripped down oiled machine like some literary fiction, as you're kind of pointing out, is. It's this stuffed fullness to it as well. Yeah. I think of when they're making the jellies on the street. Or like they make the jams that they have to be then put on the sidewalk to cool. And that detail's not really relevant to uh, character development in a way that like if you're paring down your literary fiction to a Carver-esque level, it needs to be, you know, there for a reason. But like there and maybe it is, but there's just like these mounds of pink jelly on the sidewalk. Um, yeah. yes. Wonderfully evocative. There's all this wonderful descriptions of stuff. And so when you do the when you do the plot outline or like I've I've talked about this book with a few people and they're like, oh, it's so depressing. It's just like a woman has two affairs and dies and kills herself, you know, but it's like the book, like reading it sentence by sentence is like so lush and Mm -hmm. filled with like a love of things that I can't be depressed when I read it. You know, I find that sensuousness is kind of everywhere. And there's an interesting connection that's i think conscious on flaubert's part between the style and the sort of stuff as character in the book Mm -hmm. and the outcome so even though he's a realist and even though he's like an aesthetician in some way there's also the didactic quality of the book too Mm -hmm. where there's a clear sort of send-up of the young bourgeois or whatever specific upper middle class you want to call them they're not in their pretensions and in their striving for certain sensuous experiences. They're not doing enough. They, are, they haven't achieved anything. There's no value or goodness that they've gained. Mm-hmm. It's, it's similar to the Quixote figure who, by reading a million books, has become like insane, not really, really smart. <laughs> I, I had a question. So I like, because I think there's a really fine line that you're getting at, which I, I like. Uh, what was the Auerbach comment on language again i believe you're referring to this he believes that the truth of the phenomenal world is also revealed in linguistic expression i love that you brought that in and then mentioned the sort of thinginess as it's connected to the bourgeois world of that he's depicting because there's like that fine the fine line i'm talking about is the power of like linguistic expression to represent someone's inner psychology and the you have to be able to like you know, like you said, spend a day writing a paragraph to get to that, but then also to represent your external world in that in those terms, it's like this push and pull, and it's playful but serious. Uh, Soren asked why we are reading this. What's what do we think of the whole book? And I agree with both of you that there's this really powerful energy in the prose that just makes you want to keep reading and you enjoy it, regardless of how depressing uh, some people find it. And the capacity for the author to capture something in linguistic expression i think is of central concern to the characters as well for instance this is one of those books that we could always just each of us could each saying for instance and and pull another quote out because it's so enjoyable to read but after rolf boulanger and emma have a falling out and she's pleading with him to take her back he is unable to understand her language as serious because he's heard it from so many loose women as this translation has it 
And then Flaubert jumps in to say, well, whereas the, whereas the truth is that fullness of soul can sometimes overflow in utter vapidity of language, for none of us can ever express the exact measure of his needs or his thoughts or his sorrows. And human speech is like a cracked kettle on which we tap crude rhythms for bears to dance to. Well, we long to make music that will melt the stars. The energy of the prose is aiming at that all the time. Like, how can I produce something beautiful and meaningful out of just the sort of melange of language that's accumulated over the years? I'm so glad you brought us to that quote, Friedrich. That's one of my favorites in the book. Tapping on the kettle to make a, a bear dance. Yes. That's such a lovely, evocative image. And it's like, it, and it is, it is itself almost a, it's a perfect contraption because that expression itself is this kind of crude, inapt expression that's trying right. to get at this inner reality while he's talking about that very thing, language it's interesting. trying to get do we, at. Do you find that a nice metaphor? You know, like Proust famously said, like, there are no beautiful me- metaphors in Flaubert, in Madame Bovary. But, and I think that's weird because it's like, the point is like, it is a weird metaphor that mm-hmm. I like for its weirdness, but the point from the character's standpoint is that metaphors aren't good enough, you know? Yeah, and like, yeah. I'm, and like Leo Bersani is a critic who I think makes a lot of influential points about this book. And one of them is like this sort of philosophy of disappointment, I might call it. And for Flaubert, there's this need that he has that he's driven to make a perfect sentence and define and characterize the world through language as beautifully as he possibly can. But the same time he knows that that kind of leads nowhere or to put it in like slightly more philosophical terms there's no epistemic value that one gets from a beautiful metaphor there's no truth inherent in language Mm -hmm. in the way that like language connects our words to the things and so it's only through like evoking some kind of like beauty or like real richness that you get close to how it feels to be in the world but you can sense that Flaubert is like a real pessimist about how much language can describe anything. And that that passage is kind of the the crux of that point in the book. It's just a really weird and interesting point to have as someone who spends their like whole life wanting to write beautiful books is to just be utterly depressed and disappointed with the shortcomings of that project. And like if people have read the sentimental education, you know, that's the same thing too all Flaubert's books he's just like disappointed that people don't learn things beauty doesn't get us goodness Mm -hmm. you know he's not Mm -hmm. he's not Keats's urn right or beauty and truth like they have no connection Carl's making a great point that there's an uncertainty about the value of all this the aesthetic endeavor there's such a back and forth and Flaubert is someone who maybe this is apocryphal said I am Madame Bovary when he was dying or something right and then people say yeah that's probably not really true and his letters say he didn't really identify with her that strongly. He also, uh, at another time, he did also say, I am Spartacus. So, <laughs> <laughs> Just to confuse the issue. <laughs> but there is something in the book that's, regardless of whether or not he embraces a romantic sense of language, which he doesn't, I would agree. There's something about like the way you are able to talk and think in language determines a lot about who you are so for instance with charles there's a really great so many metaphors where he says um that his conversation was like a sidewalk uh it was so plain and and flat that any workman could walk on it and no one would be edified by anything charles said and no one you couldn't go into a conversation and and have something flourish 
because it was just like this concrete that you can't, you know, you just walk on it. It's very workmanlike. And so in addition to the Bovariest Quixote aspect of this novel, the, the whole central aspect of it um, about buying into the romantic and buying into the novelistic, there's also the opposite prosaic sort of inability to flourish because your language doesn't meet your needs. I want to take us to one particular point in the novel, but I want to do it in a roundabout way by talking about a theorist who I think is pretty interesting in regards to this book. Um, and that's uh, Rene Girard, who's maybe be- best known as sort of a religious anthropologist of this, this idea of the scapegoat. Um, but his first book is actually a book of literary criticism called Deceit, Desire, and the Novel. And in it, he's talking about, he comes up with this basic difference between what he calls romances and then the Romanesque, right? Then mm-hmm. So romances are a form of literature that sort of I don't know, gets high off of its own supply that like buys into the romantic notions of what it's seeking to do. And then the Romanesque to him, which is typical of the not the actual great novel is distinguished by its criticism of that approach. Right. And so for him, of course, it this starts with Quixote and, but then Bovary, I think is also important in this idea of a sort of self-criticism of the romantic notions that, and this is, you know, we think about this in the modern, modern day as well, right? Like, Oh, like, literature can change your life, right? It makes us better people. It makes us more empathetic. And there's something that I think at least one strain of great authors, I'm not going to claim that all of them do this, but one strain of of great authors are attuned to is the fact that it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. And that there is a power. And one of the things that Girard is interested in starting in that book and then later on is this idea of mimesis, that we learn to desire by watching other people desire and that can come through direct observation as a child observes its parents or it can come through reading literature right this is quixote's problem he he learns to desire chivalry by reading these books of chivalry and in the same way madame bovary comes to desire this fine sensuous life by reading these romances and for gerard what the great authors are doing are is always interrogating that that idea of mimesis. And I say all that to take us to a, a moment really late in the book of this really strange, to me, use of language by Flaubert. This is, so this is after Emma has died and Charles is like starting to mourn her. Flaubert says at one point that he has become corrupted by her, mm. but mm. he sort of catches her, her disease of sensuousness. And this is how Flaubert is describing his mourning process. The aromatic herbs were still smoking, and spirals of bluish vapor blended at the window with the entering fog. There were few stars, and the night was warm. The wax of the candles fell in great drops upon the sheets of the bed. Charles watched them burn, straining his eyes in the glare of their yellow flame. The watered satin of her gown shimmered white as moonlight. Emma was lost beneath it, and it seemed to him that Spreading beyond her own self, she blended confusedly with everything around her. The silence, the night, the passing wind, the damp odors rising from the ground. This is like the um, the music video to Total Eclipse of the Heart or something, right? Like, it's like <laughs> wax dripping everywhere. It's like this super lush, kind of grossly moist atmosphere. And this is totally foreign to anything that Charles has felt or done in the book before, right? He is... You're absolutely right to that, Friedrich, to that point. He's like 
so plain that you can just walk upon his speech, right? And, and nothing will be disturbed. And here he's succumbed to the temptation, to this seduction of sensuousness. And Flaubert is building that into the way that he writes this, right? This is, I think, self-consciously sort of bad purplish prose, right? It's this cheap romance novel idea of the lover after death, right? Her spirit's blending into everything around her. Her, her dress is shimmering like the moonlight, even though she's dead. He's pointing us to the way in which the language of literature itself can bend our will its way and can seduce us into a distorted understanding of the world. Yeah, and I think the novel sort of cuts two ways along those lines. Like, on the one hand, what makes Emma Bovary somewhat of a heroine is her desire for more than what a certain level of reality or linguistic reality for Flaubert can easily give us or quickly allow us to consume. So that want is in itself somewhat heroic or maybe Pyrrhic to have, but then confusing that want with any expectation of ever getting it in any serious way is a real foolhardy and so quickly becomes a bit mock heroic right away. It also is, again, as another fountainhead, it's the reason why the, the literary fiction model, when it becomes purple prose, is considered bad because we've, we've um, accepted our own delusions rather than our need for something beyond our immediate wants. I like what you're both saying and think that the idea of like language and literature kind of jerking you around a little bit, not that violently, but as you were both saying, married in this with the sort of economic realities that allow you to have those dreams. And that's obviously the other aspect of Madame Bovary's problems is that she's also doing all that spending because now she has these goods available to her from, you know, around the world that weren't available to her 20 years ago, if she had been born then or 40 years ago. And uh, there's a, a great sort of emphasis of that marriage after Leon promises not to see her again near the end of the book. And uh, it says that he gave up his romantic dreams to become a head clerk. And then Flaubert writes, there isn't a bourgeois alive who in the ferment of his youth, if only for a day or for a minute, hasn't thought himself capable of boundless passions and noble exploits. The sorriest little woman chaser has dreamed of oriental queens in a corner of every notary's heart lie the moldy remains of a poet. Which maybe, ouch, that rings true now. But there's like that the promise of everything to you now as the economic world is opening up in addition to your literary worlds. I think there's some absolutely a resonance here that you're picking up on, Friedrich, between the idea of managing a household budget or fiscal fiscal responsibility and literary responsibility. And something that Carl was pointing out before is that part of what animates this book is the tension between those things. On the one hand, you have these characters who are very responsible with their money and their words, and they're kind of either odious or just laughable, right? You have LaRue, the shopkeeper, who's really kind of a, a villain. He's deliberately manipulating these events so as to make as much money as possible and doesn't care that he's ruining Madame Bovary in the, in the process. Or you have 
Hamai, the the pharmacist, who's probably my favorite character in the book, who I want to talk a little bit more about, who has aspirations to be some sort of great person in the Enlightenment mold, yeah. but in fact is just out for his own gain and is is very interested in in making the books balance and and so you have like that those characters and then you have this extravagant soul of Emma Bovary and I think Carl, one thing that you're absolutely right about that I want to be careful to to emphasize is that even though Flaubert has a critical eye on these passions, I think he is still drawn to them. And it's probably better to be, from his perspective, probably better to be Emma than it is to be Hamai or something, right? Oh, yeah. And and in the same way, is it, you know, and that's another connection maybe back to Don Quixote, right? Don Quixote, even though he dies insane and, you know, is very much ridiculed throughout the book, he is such a compelling character and his vision of life is so much better than those of the people around him that you can't help but be drawn to him and i think that emma's exactly the same way right there's something so attractive about her vision of the world and i think that flaubert is attuned to that tension like you can't actually live a life that way right you can't live a life like emma because then you end up ingesting mm-hmm. arsenic but at the same time like is it worth living life like a larue or like a hamai i'm not sure and then that plays itself out i think you're right at the level of language as well there's that struggle in the book between a sort of plain spokenness you know sort of straightforward descriptiveness versus then these flights of fancy this i might call it like a literary prodigality the desire to just sort of spend it all in one go and i think that 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 tension is something that flaubert is trying to balance throughout the book yeah and he i think in his later novels, right, he gets more and more drawn to just like a prose poem style or something we might call it, as ornate and as sensuous as he can be. He remains drawn to that impulse. And um, again, back to Bersani, he ties like Flaubert to sort of Beckett in a lot of ways. And there's that same tension in Beckett. Throughout all of his career, he's writing shorter and shorter things <laughs> and trying and trying to pare away any beauty really or any length from his sentences but they remain like stark and still and crisp and beautiful in some way and there's i don't know to be maybe overbroad there's like that transcendence mm-hmm. the yearning for it in emma bovary and like for flaubert it can't help but seem a bit ridiculous to want that but it also can't help but seem less ridiculous than a charles bovary right <laughs> or these other characters yeah who sort of walk through life without any real attunement to that need for transcendence it's one of those books that i'm maybe you two feel differently but i'm hard pressed to find a character in the novel who you're supposed to like be like sometimes we talk about in elliot or in um trollope other 19th century novels that we've read often english that there are characters who are sort of models for your for good behavior and that's not what this book is doing i don't think at all right (laughs) Every, every we're in like as you're both pointing out we're in tension between these different directions at all times but we're never like and then there's the good farm hand who shows you the the value of honest work or something like that right like even in candide we're supposed to be in line with some of these characters sure or, or you know along for their ride and their viewpoints but we're very clearly not meant to view the world just as emma bovary views it and that speaks to you know Flaubert's skill in clearly conveying that, but not making you instantly uninterested in the nor, whole book. Nor right? do you hate the characters. Right, right. Yeah. And I do think that kind of can play itself out sometimes where 
that's part of, I guess, why people like Franzen, you know, with, oh, this, this notion that we're just looking at interesting things and not meant to find any didactic models for anything in any of our fiction that kind of comes from Flaubert in a way, because that's just part of his worldview. Like he's just doesn't mm-hmm. think human learning is going to get anywhere ever. Franzen was willing to say like, no, some things are better than some other things and you can learn some things and fiction can help you learn things. So that's what a correction is and the corrections or whatever people were once again attuned to that right that old like pre-flaubert sense you read a book about a hero to see how the hero does well and to model yourself after that and to see how they fail and how to avoid that pitfall back to like pilgrim's progress kind of thing so there's some circles there to me one of the most striking examples of that in the book of sort of flaubert's cynicism about learning things or adopting models of life is you have this clash between or a supposed clash between two characters in the book one of whom is Hamai the pharmacist who sees himself as a paragon of enlightenment ideals french revolutionary ideals democracy progress science who though of course is constantly straining beyond what his actual abilities are he he by the end of the book he's tried to heal a blind man um with a, a lotion that he's come up with he fails to do this and then he like gets the guy in prison so he'll stop talking about how he didn't get cured by him uh, which is delightful and then on the other hand you have the the parish priest of their town and it's pretty funny the way that flaubert brings them together because they're constantly bickering with each other but then they're also just sort of always spending time together because you get the sense that they both just like to complain about things. And then you have this wonderful scene at the end. It's this so darkly comic. They've said, okay, we're going to stay up with the body. We're going to watch the body of Emma after she's died. And they're both there and they're arguing back and forth about the afterlife and all this stuff, right? And then they just both they both just fall asleep in front of the body because they can't. They're, and he describes them as having like these giant paunches and they're just like – Right, they're bloviated men, both of them, and they've just fallen asleep on the job. And it's this wonderful moment of puncturing, right? Both the pretensions, of course, because he's he, Flaubert himself is not really a fan, you know, certainly not of the Catholic Church in France. But at the same time, at least here, he doesn't seem to be a, a fan of the sort of progressive ideal of we're going to remake society and make it new. He's very cynical about what lies underneath that, which is maybe just a self-serving self-aggrandizement and so by kind of bringing these two characters together and having them fail at this one very basic job that they've been given he's he's doing that puncturing and he's showing like don't take these huge systems of thought or these strident social positions as really being worth much of anything in the end it reminds me a little bit of his uh later novel bouvard et pecouchet which i think we've talked about uh, off air in which these two men inherit some money and then go live and pursue every branch of a knowledge and just flounder their way through it and fail at everything they're doing and they never learn anything and it's sort of like a candide-esque narrative tale so do we make anything i guess if if i'm trying to draw this claim that the book has something to say about the like failure to ever sort of fulfill one's desires is that claim like supported or denied by the fact that there's a second affair and it's with the person that Emma originally wanted to be with, Leon? And this 
doesn't work. But I mean, you know, people have claimed that those scenes of them, like seeing the opera and Emma, Emma's passion and her, there's something that actually does feel fulfilled, if anything, in the book. So maybe there's like a puncturing of this idea that the bourgeois tastes don't lead anywhere. Perhaps they do in, in some of these moments. It's precisely when this original desire is in fact met in some way. And there is some fulfillment there. Well, or is, I, it, or is yeah. that not, it's not true? I, I'm not sure. I would push back at that because even the, the example of the opera, like they leave unfulfilled because they don't see the end of the opera and they're supposed to go back and see it and they don't. And that actually reminds me, you brought up Kierkegaard at the beginning, Carl. And it does make me think about his book, Repetition, or written by the, the pseudonym Constantine Constantius. And in that, Constantius describes this really wonderful feeling. He goes to Berlin he spends a time there. He has a wonderful time. He goes to the theater. He loves everything. And then he comes back at a later time and tries to recapture all of those things. And he can't do it. It doesn't work. It fails him. This repetition fails. And there's something to that, I think, even in the actual affair with Leon, that is sort of a debasement or an unfulfillment of the original vision, which is like, it's almost sweeter, I think, to Emma to have that unfulfilled romance with him as someone who is sensuous in the way that she is sensuous and romantic in the way that she is romantic. And I mean that sort of in a capital R romantic sense, alive to the sensations of the world, willing to be porous to those great feelings that you might be able to have. And Leon is sort of a sympathetic fellow traveler with her in that. And then the actual like physical love affair with him ends up being really disappointing to both of them, right? They're like, it's really funny the way he describes it, but by the end, even before she has to beg him for money and he doesn't want to pay it, they're both kind of thinking like, oh, this is not working, but I want to keep doing it to have something to feel basically, right? But they both kind of want to break it off and they're both disappointed in that lack of fulfillment there. I think there's maybe one way to read it where there is a sort of fulfillment or of those desires, but I think in, a, in another deeper sense, there is that just that lack of fulfillment and a sense of like not being able to capture what's happened. I think about this wonderful description about a third of the way through the book or so. She's gone to this ball at the like a Viscount's house, right? He's like the wealthiest and most important person she's ever been around. And she loves this ball. She sees all these things happen. And then she spends the next year literally reimagining it every week. She tries to recapture the feeling of what it was like to be there. She's desperate to be invited back. She never is. And she tries to recapture it in the mind and replay it. And then eventually it just fades and fades and fades. And like that with Leon, she forgets about him, right? He fades from her mind as she engages with Rodolphe and their activities. And so there's a sense of like just not being able to keep a firm grasp on what our desires are and, and even as we think they're being fulfilled, then they fade away from us. I totally agree with all those points. But again, similar to Beckett, there's kind of like the point is that it's a bad joke or like the point <laughs> is that this is a artistically successful depiction of the lack of success and how it seems like perhaps Flaubert there is trying to show us and with some kind of successful aesthetic goal having been met that this lack of success is, I don't know, some kind of fulfillment in an understanding of, of that. Like for the reader, there's supposed to be some fulfillment there. I guess that's changing my claim a little bit, but. 
I like it. I still think I still think there's a point to that moment. I'm just trying to get at what it is. Can I shamelessly segue from that into something that I want to talk about, which is the we- the weird structure of this book? I love that. Actually, totally buy that claim. And at the same time, I'm going to push back against it by claiming that the way that this book is structured is meant to ultimately leave us unfulfilled. And I say that because we have. It's just a. I just can't figure this book out honestly in terms of the structure. We start at the very beginning with a couple of chapters where Emma doesn't show up at all. It's all about Charles, as and we start with him as a young boy, through his education as a doctor, to his first marriage. Is actually he marries an old an older widow who's very wealthy, and then sort of is like making eyes at Emma while he's still married, and then she dies and they get married. But it starts out in this first person plural also. Like, it's almost like a Nick Carraway situation or something. It's like, <laughs> I knew Charles back in the old days. And then that disappears from the book, which is really strange. And and then and then we kind of transfer into Emma's story as it picks up when she marries Charles. And then we follow her through. And we're following her through, you know, the bulk of the book. And then the last 15 pages or so of the book, she dies. She's gone. And then we follow Charles again as he his life is just ruined by... His adoption of Emma's sort of corrupt ways. He keeps spending money because he wants to honor her memory. And then he gets sucked into this world of sensuousness himself. And then he discovers that she was cheating on him. And then he dies, leaving their daughter all alone. And then we pick up at the very end with Hame again, who's the only character left standing, I guess. And it's like, (laughs) this guy got what he wanted, which was to become like a, it's like basically like a knight of the realm, right? Or whatever. He gets this like... (laughs) He gets honored by French bourgeois society. And like that's where Flaubert leaves us. And it's this very structurally very unsatisfying ending. But at the same time, I think satisfying. I want to have it both ways. It's unsatisfying from the perspective of like, I thought this was a book about Madame Bovary, right? But then at the same time, it's very satisfying in that very unsatisfyingness. So I, so I guess I do agree with you, Carl. I don't know. I worked myself back into agreement with you. Uh, here. Yeah, I mean, I think you remind me of like, you know, the famous problems with narration in Moby Dick, right? Like, call me Ishmael, and then all of a sudden there's all these things happening that like Ishmael could not have been experiencing first person. (laughs) And then we end like kind of back with Ishmael again. So I think it's just an 1850s thing. (laughs) You know, Valette also has an interesting weird structure like that too, where Valette, you begin with these minor characters who Lucy Snow, the protagonist, is observing and uh, only later does she become the sort of central character, but then it ends with her again summarizing, much like with Ome, the sort of outcomes, the positive outcomes of like villainous characters uh, very curtly in that same way where he wins this award or whatever is, is bestowed, Con- continuing to back up the point that it's an 1850s thing. <laughs> we need to do our three-way 1980s cage match here. <laughs> I'll take Moby Dick. Friedrich will take Valette, and I guess Soren's got Madame. Moby Dick would clearly be the mankind of that cage match. Madame Bovary's the undertaker. What about the Mr. Socko on a mankind's hand? Yeah, I mean, that's the the harpoon, baby. (laughs) From hell's heart, Mr. Socko stabs at thee. About that first person plural is something I noticed you're sort of pointing it out. It's like the Nick's Caraway, the plural narrator's. (laughs) We were in study hall when the headmaster entered and this ill-dressed boy comes in. And as that's happening, there's also this interesting, every few pages, like quotation of like idiomatic expression, as if you're all part of this same observing society. They all get into the room and they throw their hats against the wall. 
because that was how it was done in quotes um <laughs> and then someone's father-in-law dies and went into textiles as if that's just like there are these like phrases that come back and i think there's one where his mother they like went to see her die but it's not actually dying it's just her being ill or something and there's these returns to a weird idiomatic french which i'm reading this in english so i don't know what it's referring to but that goes away and i feel like that's part of the we narration style that Mm. it's social in some way and you're in the language of everyone and then at the end, you kind of return to that, I guess, with Ome. Like, I think there's there's something there. Okay, this is maybe a re- slightly related point, but Hame, I noticed several times is Flaubert goes out of his way to say that he's talking in English. He uses English mm. phrases in his interesting in his words, and so there's something of that. Like, it's almost like he's trying to set himself apart from the crowd. Like he's using these cliched phrases, but they're in another language, so they're not cliche. So it's okay. I guess what I was thinking is at the end, it just isn't with Omey, the authorities treat him conservatively and public opinion is on his side that he has yeah. the people um, with him. The we has gone to him. They've returned. Yeah, there's, we've come full circle. <laughs> but I agree about the structures. It's odd and, and that's part of what makes it compelling. In a letter while he was writing this, Flaubert famously told someone that it would be beautiful to write a book about nothing a book that like leans on nothing and therefore whose like purpose is almost invisible. The connection to Beckett there is kind of obvious with the nothing. And I do think that's an important feature of the book. And like I was saying too, about sort of um, literary fiction of now, it's, it's sort of looked down upon to have content. It's sort of looked down upon to suggest that literature should teach us something. And that kind of, that feeling, that sentiment comes a lot from Flaubert. Emma Bovary is a person who we are meant not to try to learn lessons from her behavior and her insights and her ways of reading literature, right? There's some kind of clear knocks on that whole school of didactic thinking about art. And I think Beckett did something interesting with it, the nothingness. But then as we read a lot of philosophical novels, right, or like the Brothers Karamazov, there's certainly a something to the content of a lot of these philosophical novels or philosophical art strives to knock down something of that claim about nothingness. So I like both sides, I guess. And I think you can even read like we've been trying to do a somethingness to the book and the structure. Well, I think that that fundamentally ambiguous or ambivalent point you've made, Carl, is a good place to wrap up our ambivalent thoughts about this quite ambivalent novel it's a really wonder if you've never read it it's a really wonderful read obviously it's one of those books that are so famous that maybe you think you don't need to read it or it's not worth reading but it's famous for a reason right it's like beethoven's fifth symphony or something right (laughs) you think you know what's going on and then you hear it again and you realize oh my gosh i don't even understand half of it go read it Think it through, luxuriate in its sensuous language, despair over its nothingness, whatever else you want to do. We'll be back next time with our final installment in Lonely Women in Your Area. This is Friedrich's pick, but I'm very excited about it. It's The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. I'm deep into it. I'm enjoying it. Thomas Hardy, the bad boy of Victorian literature, um, sort of the Andrew Dice Clay or something of his time. (laughs) The Tom Hardy of his time. And now martial law is in effect. Return to your homes. 
Hold your families close. And wait. He says to George Eliot, You were merely adopted the, <laughs> the provinces I was born in. <laughs> I apologize. That was good. That was really good. That's a lovely, lovely voice. We'll be back. It's a, it's a, I'm finding it to be a gripping read in many ways. Um, I'm really enjoying it. So, so much carnage, so much venom. It's going to connect again in some pretty obvious ways to Middlemarch. It, in some ways, you could almost read it as a very dark riff on Middlemarch. But, uh, but we're going to come back and talk about it and, um, and wrap up this section. And then we're going to be moving on to our final section of the season. So we're getting near the end, but we're, we're pressing onward. So if you get your hands on the Mayor of Casterbridge, you want to read along, great. If not, just join us here next time. Until then, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. I demand that further publication of this book be forbidden. Emma Bovary, this corrupt, loathsome, contemptible creature. Emma Bovary, this woman of insatiable passions. Emma Bovary, this monstrous creation of a degenerate imagination.